Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, I sit down with Tyler D. Perry, an assistant professor of African American and African Diaspora Studies at UNLV. We go over the verdict against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin following the death of George Floyd and the policing reform going through the legislature in part because of the case. After that, we hear from reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rendells, who give us an update on what bills they're keeping an eye on after another legislative deadline. At the end of the episode, I talk with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, about what has been happening in the nation's capital this week, from infrastructure bill negotiations to debates about making Washington, D.C. a state. Dr. Tyler Perry is an assistant professor of African-American and African diaspora studies at UNLV. He is also a contributing columnist for us here at the Nevada Independent, where he writes opinion pieces about criminal justice and policing reform. I talked with him about one of the biggest stories in the news this week, the verdict against the former police officer Derek Chauvin, who was found guilty in the murder of George Floyd last year in Minneapolis. Floyd's death touched off a wave of protests in Nevada and around the world, and policymakers in Nevada have passed and proposed an array of policing reform legislations in the wake of the movement. I talked with Dr. Perry about what he makes of the policing changes, but first I asked him about his reaction to the Chauvin verdict. I was actually surprised. I thought that he would get the manslaughter charge just because of the nature of police protections that exist throughout society. But I thought the video showed pretty clearly at the very least that charge would be leveled. But once the verdict came back so quickly, I had suspected that maybe all three charges would would be leveled against him. And, and that was the case. So initially, I was a bit surprised by by how quickly everything seemed to have wrapped up and that a police officer in this type of high profile killing was convicted of the most serious charges. So the fact that he was convicted on that charge was initially surprising, but then in retrospect, you usually take time to think about these things after the impact kind of subsides a little bit. It, it did seem pretty clear to me that the prosecution had a strategy that would serve to remind the jurors of the callous nature under which George Floyd died. The governor, legislative leaders, universities, police agencies, and other entities in Nevada put out statements on Tuesday after the Chauvin verdict. I was curious if any of them stood out to Dr. Perry. It's kind of an interesting uh, moment where you see even the fractions within society, people who might agree with each other on the verdict or politically even divided over what the appropriate response is for the actual verdict of the trial. I think that for most left-leaning people in general, they found that at least in that individual case, some sense of justice was, was given, but that seeking justice is a continuous process. And so unfortunately, I didn't see anything particularly memorable from leaders throughout the Valley as far as what it means going forward. Very general, vague statements. But hopefully this translates into citizens undertaking a campaign to actually see legitimate and authentic reforms going forward within the criminal justice system. I wanted to know if policing reform was something that was getting the attention that Dr. Perry believes it should in the state, especially during a time when the legislature is dealing with a budget crisis. 
I think for most citizens, criminal justice reform, and also because of kind of the legalese that's involved in a lot of this process. So a lot of people just don't quite understand exactly what the reforms are designed to do. And a lot of people don't have time to read all of the many bills that are going to the legislature. But I think that for me, after reading some of these actions, if done correctly, they could kind of have it both ways to some degree. On the one hand, seeing criminal justice reform that protects marginalized people while simultaneously contributing to the budget crisis in a way to where the taxpayers are no longer paying these exorbitant amounts of money just to detain people within jails. There are a lot of bills related to police reform moving through the legislative process this session, ranging from putting limits on when police can deploy tear gas into a crowd to requiring mental health evaluations for police. I asked if any of the bills in the legislature right now stuck out to Dr. Perry. I specifically liked this idea that, you know, I've been advocating for a little while now that the current structure of police training is woefully inadequate for what police are doing within the communities and what they're asked to do. Because if you look, as far as I understand it, I mean, the academy within, I think, Clark County in Metro is about 24 weeks, and then a person's put on the street under some type of probationary model. But then that does not respond to the many cultural and social needs that communities are requesting police to do. And so one of the things that I I did like was this notion that an associate's degree would be required before going out into the street. I'm not entirely thrilled about the two years of military service aspect of it. I'm I'm not sure that that's an equal aspect of it. And it's not entirely clear that former military veterans are guaranteed to make great police officers. They can be, but there's also issues of PTSD and you know heavy-handed forms of patrolling that are sometimes associated with, with veterans of the military. But I do like this idea of an actual educational structure that is not just about this is what you do when you meet a suspect in the street or this is how you react to tense situations, but that you actually understand the culture of policing, that you understand the history of policing, you understand why there's a distrust of police officers. And I think a two-year process of an associate's degree leading toward eventual entry into the academy is a good approach. You know, if reform is the way forward for many people, some people say abolition, some people say defunding, But if reform is the model that legislators are pushing, I thought that that bill was pretty good. I also asked Dr. Perry if he thought any of these bills were actually going to make a significant change or if some of the proposed legislation was more symbolic. Well, this is this is always a good question because we know that laws are passed every legislative session. The community impact is sometimes unknown because either things are just not implemented or they're allowed to kind of languish. I mean, So one example that comes to mind is it's my understanding that ethnic studies initiative was was passed within the legislature some years ago, and there was supposed to be some type of requirement within the K through 12 system where students were supposed to have some type of credit elective in ethnic studies. But as far as I know, it's never really been implemented. So theoretically, it's law. But there are ways in which things can kind of languish under oversight And if people aren't paying enough attention, they can just kind of die after the legislative session. It will all depend on whether or not there's a follow through and oversight, because one of the the main problems of 
governmental bureaucracies is that they are very good at passing laws, but sometimes not great at actually ensuring they're implemented. One of the things Senator Dallas Harris has proposed is for there to be more tracking of questionable behavior and complaints against individual officers in the state, creating an early warning system that could prompt intervention from a supervisor before an officer goes too far. Back to the Chauvin trial, actually, I think one of the things that Harris proposed is you have kind of this neutral party that can oversee uh, this data released from the police department where you could actually have kind of like this red flag law where if an officer does have a significant amount of civilian complaints leveled against them, there's a red flag upon that person and you can preemptively stop something like that happened to George Floyd happening um, to somebody within Las Vegas Valley. And so if there is a a neutral party that is not necessarily connected to LVMPD that does review the files of officers who have complaints leveled against them, with appropriate funding and staffing of that type of neutral party, I think that something along those lines could could work if, if done correctly. I asked if there are any lessons Nevadans can learn from the Chauvin case when approaching reform moving forward. Well, I mean, there's always steps forward in in any social justice movement in the past. I've never been one that's prone to kind of a defeatist attitude that says, well, we got this one thing, but nothing else is going to happen at that point, because that attitude has never worked in previous activist circles, that there's there's always a recognition that society can be better and to push forward. And I think within this case, yes, it's only it's only one case, but it was a significant one. We, we should not downplay the possibilities of this moment because I think that most people felt a different energy in the summer of 2020. And the very notion that there are calls for nationwide changes to policing, something along the lines of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. This is pretty unprecedented for me. I think that you know public pressure forced people to take this trial seriously, and the implications of holding police accountable were much more apparent this time around than in moments in the past. If you want to read more from Dr. Perry, check out his columns on our opinion page, and if any of the bills talked about caught your attention, visit our site or subscribe to the Behind the Bar newsletter for more legislative updates twice a week. All right, and so I'm joined by Riley Snyder and Michelle Rundells down in Carson City reporting on all things legislature-related. Uh, Tuesday was deadline day. It was a big day. Lots of bills were heard, 57 in the Senate, 86 in the Assembly. And, you know, what what is going on? What are the big bills we should be watching? So deadline day was interesting for a couple of reasons. Tuesday was the nominal deadline for bills to pass out of their house of origin. So if a bill came from the assembly, it had to pass out of the full assembly. If it came from the Senate, it had to pass out of the full Senate. However, one of the more interesting trends that we noticed was that a lot of the bigger bills that people are, are paying a lot of attention to this session, such as the one expanding mail voting, one making Nevada the first state in the presidential primary calendar, these were all referred to budget committees because they have a financial impact on the state, but it kind of avoided a big showdown on Tuesday. I'd say probably the biggest bill that did end up passing on Tuesday was a bill from Assemblywoman Sandra Howdigy, AB 286. That's the one that bans so-called ghost guns or gun kits. 
the original version of the bill also would have given businesses greater legal standing to prohibit people from bringing guns onto their property. But all of that was uh, removed, and the only part of the bill remaining is dealing with ghost guns. And it was sort of weird because usually you see a lot of like floor debates on deadline day. Lawmakers want to get their positions on the record. But at least in the assembly, the ghost gun bill was the only one that got four debates. You said, I think it was 80-something bills passed out of the assembly. It was like very, very, it was very quick. Not a lot of like debate on a lot of these measures, many of which passed on party line votes. The only one that really got a lot of debate was the ghost guns one. There's also a lot of stuff going on with tenants' rights right now in the Senate. Michelle, do you want to touch on, on kind of what's going on there? Yeah. So Julia Ratty, she's a Democrat from Sparks, a senator, has a bill that is going to expand tenants' rights, make it a little easier for tenants to have the grounds to keep their security deposit. Sometimes it can be difficult if you have a landlord that comes up with reasons. They want to keep your full security deposit. So this would put some more parameters on that. This would also limit landlords to only accepting a rental application fee for a single applicant or group of applicants, as opposed to having 50 people apply to rent an apartment taking a $25 fee from all 50 of them, doing a background check on one of them, (laughs) and everyone's out, you know, $25. So this would put parameters on that. That bill did advance through the Senate on deadline day. So there was also uh, a bill brought up about immigration in the state. Michelle, do you want to talk about about that one? Yes. So for three previous sessions, including this one, There have been efforts to try to address the collaboration between local law enforcement, specifically in jails, and immigration and customs enforcement. Uh, So there's a process that we've written about quite a bit called 287G, where local police agencies sort of help ICE by anytime someone comes into the detention center, they question them about their immigration status. They can put holds on them and keep them in jail longer, giving ICE a chance to come and pick these people up and take them to immigration detention, put them through deportation proceedings. So it's a a program that's been really controversial among immigrant advocates because they say this makes immigrants who don't have legal status fearful every time they need to report a crime. Let's just say they're the victim of uh, an abusive relationship. Imagine the fear of trying to call the police on that person if you think you yourself are going to be sent out of the country for making that call. So proponents of the bill believe that this would make people safer by reducing that fear factor and just increasing the collaboration between police and the community if they're if they're not so terrified of calling the police. So all that to say that there was a bill that was seeking to prevent local police from collaborating with ICE this session. And on deadline day, we saw a major amendment that totally watered the bill down, took out all that part of it, and left the bill with just one provision that asked the attorney general to come up with some model policies to do immigration uh, work that, that local police can try to abide by. It keeps a portion of the bill that created a task force that's going to study ways to ensure that immigrant small businesses are supported and and healthy. And it includes a $500,000 appropriation of general funds to the UNLV Boyd School of Law 
immigration clinic, which is pretty much the main entity that does deportation defense for people that cannot afford a lawyer. So the third session in a row, major setback for this kind of a policy. You know, I think that the Democrats tried to kind of put a positive spin on it and say, you know, it's great that we're getting this money for deportation defense. But at the end of the day, I think the advocates for less collaboration between police and ICE are are disappointed at, at what happened to this bill. Well, and there was, like I said, a ton of bills that happened. I mean, everything from, you know, cage-free eggs to uh, transparency and food delivery fees to banning decline of cats. But there were also a few bills that died. Riley, do you want to kind of tell me a little bit about the bills that didn't make it through, didn't make it through deadline day? Yeah. So the interesting difference between first committee deadline, which was a few weeks ago, that saw like 250 to 300 bills die, not make it past the deadline. On Tuesday, we saw four bills die, so much smaller stakes. The four bills that died, one dealt with uh, high-volume marketplace sellers. That's like people who make a lot of transactions on Etsy or Amazon or whatever. That just got placed on the the Senate secretary's desk, which means it's in bill purgatory, didn't advance, never got a vote. The other ones um, that failed to make it, nothing really huge. There was one about annual registration of beekeepers, so professional beekeepers, if you're listening, you're in the clear for now. There was one on... OHV like decals. So nothing like super major, but the one trend with the four bills that died, I think, was that they all had to deal with taxes. They all require a two-thirds vote because Democrats don't have a two-thirds majority. It just goes to to tell me and I think anyone listening that there just wasn't support to, to get those ones through the session. Riley mentioned that some of the significant moves were when these bills were sent to budget committees. Yeah, this could mean that there's an easy excuse to say we just don't have the money uh, to afford this bill. So goodbye, Bill. (laughs) Let it die. Two that were somewhat interesting, three actually, three cannabis bills got referred to money committees where they could face some headwinds. Those include a bill to allow for cannabis consumption lounges. Right now, regulators say they're going to have to spend several million dollars trying to get more staff to handle and another licensing process for all these additional cannabis bars, essentially. We saw one that would allow for cannabis events. So you could have a festival where cannabis would be authorized. Several government agencies put what's called a fiscal note on it. So they're saying there's going to be a price tag to implement that that's not in the governor's budget. And then there was one that would have streamlined. Most dispensaries have two licenses. They have a retail license for adult use, and they have one for medical use. So this would just do away with that weird bifurcation. Almost nobody just has one of those. They have both. But then people are paying half as many licensing fees because they're getting a single license. So there's all these issues, especially related to the cost of implementing these cannabis bills that is going to either get further discussion or I'm sure proponents would be pretty disappointed if it it died because of the the money impact. But we'll be following those closely to see if those uh, come up for discussion. Yeah. All right. Well, I I just wanted to, I guess, wrap this up by just asking, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of it's got waivers for various reasons. I know that there's we still haven't seen an innovation zone bill. There's like the big environment bill that we're still waiting on. And then like the expanded mail-in voting and moving the presidential primary. Are there any other major things that we're kind of waiting on that we're going to see maybe later on? Probably the biggest one is the mining tax resolutions. These were the uh, trio of proposed changes to the Constitution and how the state sets sort of a ceiling on mining taxes. So that's sort of been talked about the entire session, but there's been no hearing set yet. 
I asked Senator Nicole Cannizzaro a couple weeks ago, like, is the plan to go with one or to go with all three? And she kind of said all options are on the table at this point. I think there are a lot of negotiations going on sort of behind the scenes. Again, it's difficult to know what's going to happen if they just move forward with just the constitutional ones, which means they'll head to the ballot in 2022, or if they try to change the current mining tax structure, which would, again, require a two-thirds vote, so you have to find at least some Republicans to support that. But that's probably one of the bigger revenue questions, tax questions remaining over the last four to five weeks of the session. All right, cool. Well, the next deadline is May 14th, which is uh, coming up probably pretty quick for, for a lot of the lawmakers. So we'll make sure to come back around and talk about more bills then. Thank you guys so much for for giving me an update. Yeah, thanks, Joey. Thanks, Joey. All right, and so we are here for another edition of the DC Debrief with our man in DC, Humberto Sanchez. Humberto, how is the weather in DC right now? It's freezing. This came out of nowhere. Really? Last night it was in the 30s. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's been like 70, like exactly 70 all week in Reno and sunny. It's been great. <laughs> wow. We've stolen we've stolen your uh, your good weather. <laughs> we haven't done this in a couple of weeks, but we've got a lot to talk about. I guess we'll start with kind of the big news from this week, which happened on Tuesday, which was the Derek Chauvin verdict, the, the police officer that murdered George Floyd. There has been a, a renewed push for police reform and criminal justice reform now. What are we seeing in D.C. because of that? That's absolutely right. And Stephen Horsford, our representative from Nevada, he's the number two in leadership at, at the Congressional Black Caucus. So he's been involved in uh, some of these discussions that have been going on. And they've been going on for a while, right? With the, the, the House has passed their version of the, the police reform bill, and it's been actually named for George Floyd. And they've been talking about this going back to when he was killed, because it, this also spurred a talk about police reform. And so right now we're, we're, we're basically waiting for leadership in the House and Senate, Republicans and Democrats to bless these talks that are going on that, that Representative Horsford is involved in. And we expect that to happen soon. And so Representative Horsford said uh, on Tuesday, he said that there, there are several areas of agreement, including eliminating no-knock warrants, eliminating the chokeholds, creating a, a national registry for, for police officers so they can't go from department to department. And, and, and raising standards, national standards for training uh, to eliminate racial profiling. He said there's basically agreement on that. The real big sticking points uh, are basically over how to hold police officers accountable that violate people's civil rights. And what the Democrats in the House and in the Senate would like to see is they would like to have the basically the standards lowered for how that's done. And, and that includes weakening what's called uh, qualified immunity, basically, which is a legal doctrine that protects police from civil liability if they do not violate clearly established law. So it's a gray area in the course of doing their duty that if they don't violate uh, clearly established laws, they can't be held liable. And then there's also a section in the law that requires the, the police to willfully violate the law. And that's a kind of a higher standard to show in court to prosecute them, and the Democrats want to bring that to more reckless, um, recklessly violating the law, which is an easier case to prove. And th- those things are real conundrums for figuring out because Republicans in the Senate, who are led by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who is the only African American currently serving in in the Republicans conference in the Senate, he wants to make it easier for police departments to be held accountable for for police misconduct rather than 
police in individual police officers because he thinks that will have a detrimental effect on people wanting to become police officers and and you know overall morale it's a hard job let's not kid ourselves and so we're all dancing around how to do this and, and senator scott believes that they can come to an agreement in, in maybe two or three weeks again the floyd verdict has given this a high degree of importance and and we'll see what happens but representative horster's involved so we'll, we'll be uh talking to him to see how things pan out all right the next thing up that's been talked about a lot this week is D.C. statehood. This has been a kind of a topic for a, a long time. I'm always hearing about it, but it, it seems like it's getting more serious now. You know, what's going on with with making the 51st state of the United States potentially? The fact that it's gotten more serious just reflects the fact that Democrats control the presidency, they control the House, and they control the Senate. And so uh, basically, D.C. has a larger population than a couple of states, including Wyoming. The people in D.C. deserve representation like any other people who live in the, in the nation. Right now, D.C. has a delegate to the, the House. There's no Senate representation. They're basically on par with the uh, territory. And the fact that they were in the lower 48, I think it's it's been a long time that people have advocated for this, particularly in the district. So this is actually, the House passed it, and this is actually the second year in a row that they've passed it. Last time, the there was no chance of it becoming law because the Republicans controlled the presidency and the Senate. This year, the people think that there's a better chance of it coming to, becoming law. But again, it's I think it's still a uphill push because you got to get all 50 Democrats in the Senate on board. And I think, that, frankly, there's just a lot of other stuff that they want to prioritize, like infrastructure. That's going to be a big fight, like immigration reform, for example, or any number of bills that the, the Senate has passed. I did talk to Mark Amaday about this uh, a few days ago. He We talked about it actually last week. He had noted that it was coming up. And his take was basically what the Republicans have said. With, and no Republican supported this, by the way, in the House. He basically said that this is just an, a way to get two, two Democratic senators, two more Democratic senators in the, in the Senate and control the Senate. He thinks it's a political move and that ultimately, if you want to give people this representation, there's many other ways to do that without affecting the Senate. And that includes like seating D.C. to Maryland, except for a certain part of it, which would in- include the Capitol and the White House, or breaking it up into uh, seating half of it to Virginia and half of it to Maryland. But again, the, it, it's, it's very controversial. And Republicans also argue that, you know, this is, I think, the only territory, for lack of a better term, that's specified in the Constitution that there shall be this district. And that's pretty unambiguous. So it, it's, it's pretty controversial. Yeah. Well, we may, you may soon be our, our Maryland correspondent or our Virginia <laughs> correspondent instead of our D.C. correspondent, <laughs> D.C. adjacent correspondent. All right. Well, then the last thing that we wanted to touch on is Senate Republicans have introduced a counter offer to the infrastructure bill that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this huge like $2.1 trillion bill. What does that counter offer look like? It doesn't have a chance of passing. So this is they're offering $568 billion infrastructure package. They believe that the, the Biden proposal was for two trillion was too broad and too much. And they didn't like the pay for, which is basically to raise the corporate tax to pay for it. This one is is much smaller by comparison, obviously. And it's it's unlikely that it'll go anywhere. The Democrats, especially in our delegation, think that the much bigger bill is needed for the amount of infrastructure work that needs to be done. That includes broadband. That includes a lot of things that Republicans think aren't infrastructure, like helping to convert the fleet of vehicles in the nation to more electric vehicles, for example. So it's another area in which there's a lot of disagreement, especially on on how to pay for stuff. 
the pay for the Republican proposal is pretty vague. They say that it should be fiscally responsible and based on needs, which is why it's so small by comparison to the to the Biden proposal. Mm-hmm. They're, they're looking at public-private partnerships to help leverage any federal investment with private funds. And they want it to go through the existing formula, which is basically uh, infrastructure is paid with the gas tax here in the United States. So that goes into essentially this pool of money called the Highway Trust Fund, and it's given back out to states. But the gas tax has not kept pace with the need for infrastructure. So going back for about 10 years, they've had to put general funds into the into the Highway Trust Fund to make sure it pays for everything that we've, we've, we've passed laws to pay for. And so they're going to have to find another resource. Uh, they're either going to have to use more general fund money, raise the gas tax or something. Uh, and that doesn't obviously work with electric vehicles too. So they're going to have to figure out how to charge them as well. So this is, again, kind of the tip of the iceberg in this infrastructure fight, because these are the same issues that they're going to have to deal with, whether they go with the $2 trillion or, or the $600 billion. But it's going to be really interesting. Nevada would stand to get a lot of money under both, really. And Nevada, in places like Las Vegas, have infrastructure needs. Places like Reno have infrastructure needs, which is growing so fast. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. And and the delegation is very keen on getting an infrastructure bill passed. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. I can't can't wait for that 300 mile an hour train between Reno and Vegas to be built one day. (laughs) (laughs) But Humberto, thank you so much for for chatting with me today and for kind of giving us an update on on what's going on in in the nation's capital. Anytime, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Professor Tyler D. Perry, Riley Snyder, Michelle Rundells, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on every platform. Also, share the show with a friend or on social media. It really does help the show grow so we can continue to bring you fantastic interviews and updates every week. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns, weightlifting tips, post-punk revival music recommendations, or whatever else is on your mind. You can reach me at joey at thenvindy.com, and Jacob is at jacob at thenvindy.com. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Did I tell you that in the middle of an interview yesterday, I got a bloody nose? Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right.